Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, Wealth Strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. As soon as we started sort of having large social groups where relationships went from beyond face to face, you know, it wasn't like I owe Jim a favor, you know, Alice knows me from church, then something that looked like money starts to emerge. Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast for MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm James Rogers, a financial columnist at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Stephanie, we've reached the final episode of The Best New Ideas in Money. Yeah, I know. I'm going to miss it. Me too. But before we go, we thought we'd take a look back at some of the ideas we've covered over more than 100 episodes. That's a lot of ideas. Plus, we'll get to revisit some of our most memorable guests and hear from our past hosts, Jeremy Olshan and Charles Passy, along with James and me. Stephanie, looking back, did you have any favourite episodes? Well, there are a lot of episodes that stand out to me. I think one of my favorites is an early series we did on the history of money. In this clip, you'll hear from Rowan Gray, assistant professor of law at Willamette University and president of the Modern Money Network, and my first co-host, Jeremy Olshan. How did we get the system we have today? We commonly think barter inspired the creation of money. The ancient society somehow decided that cowrie shells were easier to carry around than cows. So people started using things like seashells as money because it just made trading more efficient. That story of us sort of starting with barter and then creating money is itself a myth. There isn't any anthropological evidence for a world where we started with barter. According to Gray, money enters the picture to help solve disputes that might otherwise turn violent. In his view, money was never just about making life more convenient for merchants. It has always on some level also been about the power of the state. The reality is as soon as we started sort of having large social groups where relationships went from beyond face to face, you know, it wasn't like I owe Jim a favor, you know, Alice knows me from church. It was like, I don't know you at all. And the only reason we're interacting is because we get something out of it. And if you screw me on this, I'll take you to court or we go to war. In that moment, once we had societies that big, then something that looked like money starts to emerge. And that wasn't the only episode where we dived into history. That's true, and some of those episodes are near the top of my list too. Take the episode we did on what monopoly can teach us about economics. I had no idea the board game had such an interesting history behind it. Former Wall Street Journal reporter Mary Poulon wrote a book about the game and unearthed the lost history of the creator, Lizzie McGee. In this clip, we'll hear from Poulon and my predecessor, Charles Passy. Most of the big game companies in this country, Parker Brothers, Milton Bradley, really had education as a focus. And, you know, creating a game as a way of teaching people is really effective. Why just read about something when you can actually have people kind of role playing and interacting with it? For many years, the invention of Monopoly was attributed to Charles Darrow, the man who sold the popular game to Parker Brothers in 1935. But it turns out that Lizzie McGee already patented her nearly identical game, the Landlord Game, in 1904. 
When you look at the Lizzie McGee board and what we now know as Monopoly today, you do see a lot of similarities. She has the railroads. Obviously in 1904, cars weren't such a big deal. You don't have free parking, but you have a public park because the Georgists were very interested in public land and how it should be taxed and used. The circular board design, the idea that you go around and around and around, as opposed to a game like you know, shoots and ladders where you go in a line, that was really revolutionary and really an interesting part of the game design. In her early version of the game, the instructions were to use miscellaneous household objects. And then ultimately that ends up being the tokens that we now know today. You know, another thing I enjoyed about our historical episodes was when a topic surprised me. Like I wouldn't necessarily have thought a show about taxes in the early 1920s would have been the most exciting, but that ended up being another of my most memorable episodes. In that one, former Wall Street Journal reporter and editor Ron Schaefer talked to us about the brief period when everyone's income tax return was a matter of public record. The law was changed, but public interest in who is paying what in taxes couldn't be undone quite so simply. Even to this day, you'll see newspaper stories reporting on incomes of very wealthy people with guesses and sometimes very educated guesses about what kind of taxes they pay. So the debate has continued even though the law was killed in 1926. I think there's still a great curiosity about what the wealthy pay in taxes and uh, what they're paying in terms of being their fair share. Certainly, I think a lot of lower income people doubt that they are, but nobody really knows for sure what individuals are paying. For me, one of the things I've most enjoyed about the show was hearing from the real people who were putting these ideas into practice. Me too. Take an issue like housing, which was a big theme throughout the show. We did an episode on the growing trend of co-housing and talked to someone who was actually participating in it. Holly Harper, an entrepreneur and management consultant in Tacoma Park, Maryland, bought a four-unit co-housing building with two other single moms. She spoke with us about the community they created together. The kids are like cousins. The women in the house, we relate to each other a lot like sisters. We share meals all the time, special occasions, birthdays. We have a fire pit out back. You know, there's a luxury of being able to say like, hey, I'm going for a run. My kid is, you know, hanging out watching TV with your kid. I'll be back. So we kind of have this built-in family that is just absolutely saving me money all the time. I haven't had to hire a babysitter since I moved here. I haven't had to hire a dog sitter since I moved here. I have someone to water my plants, check in on things. You know, anytime I'm gone, I'll tell the neighbors and they can, if they have family visiting, they can use my space. So the kind of day-to-day -day financial stuff has been really Other guests on the show helped introduce us to concepts that were totally new to me, like Swedish death cleaning. That practice has to do with organizing your stuff with an eye toward making sure your loved ones aren't left with your clutter when you're gone. Here's Leanne Carter, a writer in New York who gave it a try. She told us her reaction upon hearing the term. Oh, crime scene unit from a Scandinavian police procedural. And of course, it's nothing like that. It's really extreme spring cleaning. I guess think of it as downsizing. I think it really occurred to me 25 years ago after my mom died, and I had the unhappy task of helping my dad to empty out the house and to downsize him into an apartment. And, you know, in the midst of grieving, I had to get rid of so much stuff. 
it really got me thinking about not wanting to burden my kids with all my stuff after something happens to me. It's not that I think it's imminent, but it's just, it's a new way of framing what I have. And I have just found that the more stuff you have, the more it fills the house. And if you get a bigger house, you just get more stuff to fill it up. After reading an article about Swedish death cleaning, Carter was inspired to tackle the many boxes she'd never gone through after her father died. She followed the steps Margareta Magnuson suggests. Start with a plan. Let your loved ones know what you're going to do. Make a list of important documents and passwords. Give your possessions away gradually, starting with less personal items. Donate what you don't want and keep some mementos for yourself. I had cartons from my dad's apartment who had died 10 years after my mom. And I had avoided them like the plague. They sat in my lower basement and they were a little toxic. But then my son said, come on, mom, I'll help you. We'll do this. We'll tackle them together. So that's exactly what we did. Carter discovered that dealing with the leftover financial records was a huge part of the job. There were checks dating back decades, tax statements, everything you could possibly think of which was daunting, but it was also helpful to see how he had organized it because he was very methodical, he was an engineer. And I thought, you know, I'd, I'd like to be this organized, but I'd really rather not do it with paper. Otherwise, it's just more clutter. So we've moved virtually all of our financials into the cloud, password protected. We use a password manager to which my son has access in the event that something should happen to us. But also because I'm still a little old school, I also keep a backup notebook with all of the passwords written down, just in case. The good old notebook full of passwords. That reminds me, we also did an episode on those. We did. The most interesting thing for me about that one was this idea that in this age of new technology, it's making us less and less reliant on them. There's more to passwords than just the purely technical security aspects. If you look at people's cubicles in a large office building, you know, it's kind of an impersonal workspace. And well, you'll see a lot of people who have a picture of their spouse or their children at their desk as a reminder that that's why they're there and that's the important thing in life. And people do the same with passwords. That's Joseph Bonneau, an assistant professor at NYU who teaches computer science. Bonneau has studied many of the security breaches we talked about a moment ago. Using that rich database, he has been able to look into what kind of passwords people chose. I started looking at it purely from a security point of view. How secure are these things? How difficult are they to guess? But I spent a lot of time working with the data, and it was interesting to poke around and look at different passwords people chose. Overall, Bono says that while a minority of passwords were tied to hateful or negative ideas, most of them were more reassuring. One of the most common things is something about a person that they love. There's a lot of prayers, there's a lot of affirmation, and a lot of people use their password as a daily way to remember something that they really want. They'll have a lot of passwords that are affirmative sayings like that. In Bonneau's study of passwords, he found that love beat out hate nearly 200 times. Coming up, we revisit the famous restaurateur who went up against tipping and some of the most out there ideas we learned about on the show. 
That's after the break. Technology can make the world better. At UST, we're building a future where people everywhere are empowered to live better lives. It's transformation you can feel. And you don't have to do it alone. We believe in the power of technology to transform businesses and build a better world. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash wallstreet, oracle.com slash wallstreet. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we took a walk down memory lane, revisiting episodes on topics as varied as where money comes from, to monopoly, to Swedish death cleaning. James, I've got to say, initially, some of the ideas we featured were hard to wrap my head around, perhaps none more so than the one we did about digital twins. That was a wild story. A digital twin is a burgeoning technology that one day could let us create a virtual copy or simulation of a person using health data. Then you take this digital twin, and instead of the real person it's based on, test out how it reacts to a certain medicine. Or you could even put it through a medical procedure to see how the body might react. In the episode, we spoke with Roger Highfield, science director of the Science Museum Group and a member of the UK's Medical Research Council. He's also the co-author of the book, Virtual You, How Building Your Digital Twin Will Revolutionize Medicine and Change Your Life. We haven't got an entire virtual person, but we have got lots of subsystems going. For me, maybe the most exciting applications of virtual you technology are with the human heart. You can make a digital twin of a patient's heart. You can use various scanning technologies and measurements to prime a digital version so it behaves like a patient's heart. One team in Oxford under Blanca Rodriguez has been using the digital heart approach to say, well, could this give us more accurate results than testing potential drugs for serious heart side effect on animals, which is done routinely? And the answer is that human digital heart will give you more accurate results in certain circumstances than doing animal trials. And it doesn't even have to be just one heart. Another thing you can do is you can generate virtual populations. And this is something that big regulatory agencies like the FDA are beginning to accept. So let's say you've got an implant, which is like a small pacemaker. You want to put in the wall of the heart but of course, people's hearts vary a bit from person to person. So what you can do is with digital heart technology, you can generate a whole spectrum of different heart designs. And you can see whether that implant and the procedure you're going to carry out is safe on all these variants of digital hearts. So although digital twin human medicine sounds very futuristic, there are bits of it that are here right now. And there are lots of other examples I could go through. 
you know, making digital twins of the immune system, of the way cells respond to viruses. There's a team in New Zealand working on lungs, on the digestive system. So there's a lot of virtual digital twin research happening in lots of different areas all over the planet, including the States. The next idea is a bit more simple than a virtual you. It kind of boils down to this. What if your local post office was also a bank? This episode focused on alternatives to traditional banking. Almost 20% of Americans are unbanked or underbanked, which means they have a checking or savings account, but still use services outside of a traditional bank. That could be things like check cashing, money transfers, or payday loans. One of those alternatives, postal banking, is something that we used to have. Post offices are one of the few agencies explicitly authorised by the US Constitution. When the Postal Saving Bank Bill was passed in 1910, people could start savings accounts at their local office, and it was actually quite popular. There's just this big problem of unbanked and underbanked communities, and I was really curious just to see like what I could find out about things like credit unions and savings and loans and the things that were meant to be community-serving institutions. Mayor Sibaradaran is a law professor at the University of California, Irvine, and author of How the Other Half Banks. It turned out that a lot of those credit unions, industrial loan companies, savings and loans had existed exactly for this, to provide access and inclusion to these communities, and that they had over time sort of merged with the mainstream banking sector. There are nearly 60 million people living in communities with a post office, but not with a bank. It just seems like a really great fit to bring back this institution of the post office to fill the void that the banking sector has created. In 2013, Baradaran proposed the idea of bringing back some of the banking services the U.S. Postal Service used to offer and adding some new ones like savings accounts, check cashing, and small low-interest loans. The plan caught on with politicians like Senators Kirsten Gillibrand, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders. It's very low-hanging fruit. It's not a radical sort of restructuring. It's just taking the post office, which you know exists in every community regardless of profitability. And this is a decision that was made before the signing of the U.S. Constitution. This is a decision made by George Washington and James Madison and Benjamin Franklin as a way of maintaining this democracy over this wide span of space. We may not have bank accounts at post offices yet, and lots of our other episodes explored ideas in motion, movements in progress, and the hiccups along the way. Take tipping, or rather the idea that there shouldn't be any tipping. Famed New York restaurateur Danny Meyer eliminated tipping from his restaurants back in 2015. Instead of a line for gratuity, the check would simply say, hospitality included. But in 2020, Meyer scrapped the initiative, saying he just couldn't make the math work. He told us he's given up on the idea that tipping will go away. If I could wave a magic wand, we would pay everyone in the restaurant the way we pay everyone in the restaurant except for waiters and bartenders, which is, here's your compensation. I want this to be a career of choice. I love hospitality. I love being in a business where we can actually make people feel a little bit better when they leave than however they felt when they came in. I think that's a great thing, and I think we can use more of that. But it doesn't work if the people who work in the industry 
don't feel cared for, respected, don't feel like they have a pathway for growth. All right, we've got just about enough time for one more episode. James, anything that sticks out to you? One of my favourite episodes to work on was actually my first episode. In that one, we took a field trip to a curious pop-up installation called the Museum of Failure. That was a fun one. It's rare for me to be able to get out of the office, so I really enjoyed that, and I learned a lot. Here's the curator, Dr Samuel West, talking about the inspiration for the museum and a message we can all take with us going forward. My PhD research was focused on how organizations can create climates that are conductive to creativity and innovation. And part of that is the concept of psychological safety. So you need psychological safety for teams to be innovative and high performing. And one part of psychological safety is being willing to admit and discuss your failures or the failures of the team. And one of the reasons organizations don't do it on a team level or organizational level is because it's complex. It's not straightforward. You can't just easily identify the reasons for failure. You have to dig further into second and third degree sort of explanations. And that's why organizations don't do it. I thought it was just so interesting after being immersed in sort of the business literature and innovation literature, I got sick and tired of success stories because they're everywhere. And I thought that there was more interesting stories to be found with failure, more genuine. And I realized that I can't just go the academic way because people get bored with that. And I had to find a new way of making failure interesting and also making failure something that's interesting to discuss, you know, outside of even organizational context. It's essential. You can't have any innovation or progress in any field without taking risks. Thanks so much for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. This is our final episode, but not to fear, MarketWatch is hard at work on a new show. For more on that, stay tuned and stay subscribed to this feed to make sure you don't miss new updates. We'd like to thank all the guests we've spoken to over the past two years and everyone who's helped with putting the show together. Adam Pincus, Suzanne Myers, Hannah Leibowitz-Lockhart, and the team at Best Case Studios. Steve Cooper, Brandon Futernick, Megan Oftermat, Veronica Simonetti, Will Stanton, and Michael McDowell. From MarketWatch, thanks to our past hosts, Jeremy Olshan and Charles Passy, and to Jeremy Binks, Stephen Coots, Tim Roston, Nathan Vardy, and Mark DeCambry for editorial support. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm James Rogers. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Meta Lutzhoff and Katie Ferguson, who also mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Stephen Kutz was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. Thank you so much for listening to the best new ideas in money. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.